Good morning. This morning, we want to honor scripture and read scripture. We will be coming from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a, are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for, all, for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he, if he does not, or if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we prepare to proclaim the word, we come before you with hearts full of gratitude and reverence. We acknowledge that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that you open, open our hearts and minds to receive your message and understand the truth you want to reveal. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we continue our series on the lineage of hope, but the setting of the story is made clear in the opening verse of chapter one of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Our author wants us to connect this story with those of the book of Judges. So what do we know about the history of Judges? What we find there is a cycle of events that goes like this. Moral, fail, moral failure, military oppression, a call for help, the raising of a deliverer or a savior, victory followed by a short period of peace, then the deliverer dies and the cycle begins all over again. Does that sound familiar? That seems to be a resounding, resounding theme in the Old Testament. Well, here it seems there's a similar situation, not military oppression in this case, but famine. In this context, the famine would appear to be a sign of God's chastening. Just as the oppression of an enemy was elsewhere, or excuse me, just as the oppression of an enemy was elsewhere. And while there is no formal cry for help, the story resonates with Naomi and Ruth's need for deliverance. But in this case, deliverance does not come in the form of God raising up a savior or a judge, but rather 
salvation, and this story comes about through the faith of Ruth. The story begins with the famine in Bethlehem, which ironically is, or which ironically means the house of bread. So the land of promise is beset by famine. The house of bread is without any bread. So the story starts badly and it goes downhill from there. Rather than call to God for help, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, decides to leave the promised land and migrate to Moab. Now things may have been bad in Judah, but in Moab, they'd be far worse. The people of Moab were pagans who had made it clear over the centuries that they had little love for the people of Israel and the feeling was mutual. The Israelites had little love for the Moabites. The book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23 and three, declared that no Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. The Moabites were cursed people, a people with whom the Israelites were forbidden to seek a treaty or friendship. So it's not good strategic move for Elimelech to take his wife and two teenage sons to Moab, even if there is a famine in Judah, since it's almost inevitable that they'll end up wanting to marry Moabite girls. What seems fairly clear from these opening verses in chapter one is that just like Gideon's family in the book of Judges, Elimelech was an Israelite in name more than in action. He still regarded himself as one of God's chosen people, but he didn't let that affect the practical decisions of his life. And that happens next, and what happens next seems to confirm the ill-judged nature of his actions. Elimelech dies, and sure enough, his two sons marry Moabite women. And then they die too, leaving Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, without any visible means of support. Naomi hears that the Lord again has come to the aid of his people by giving them food. <clears throat> so she decides to re return straight away, return to Judah that is. It's as though Naomi knew all along that what God or what they'd done by moving, the Moab moving to Moabite was wrong. She certainly recognizes that it's the Lord who has given them She certainly recognizes that it's the Lord who has given them food again. So she sets out with her two daughters-in-law to return to Bethlehem. But then she stops. She suddenly realizes that it isn't just her who's involved. Orpah, Orpah and Ruth are Moabites. They won't be returning home. Just the opposite. Bethlehem isn't the place for them. There they'll be foreigners, subject to who knows what sort of abuse from the local men. So she makes an incredible, incredibly generous gesture towards them, urging them to go back to their own families. Never mind that she'll now be completely alone without any social support. There's almost a note of sarcasm in her voice as she says to them, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
as though she want or uh, she want to add, even if God hasn't acted like that towards me, this sense of bitterness towards God comes out even more clearly in verses 13, chapter one, verse 13. And when the two young women insist on going with her and she tells them, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. There's a real sense of hopelessness there, isn't it? It's as if she thinks that God has been, uh, that God has been punishing her and will go on punishing her for leaving Judah to come to Moab, and it would be better if they weren't with her to share her punishment. Our narrator clearly wants us to feel the sense of loss and despair that Naomi is feeling at this point. It's a feeling that may have felt down, that many have felt down the ages, a sense of God having abandoned them, or even, as in Naomi's case, perhaps, of tar targeting them for punishment. Her situation about as bad, is about as bad as it gets. I'm not sure we can fully understand it from the perspective of our liberated society, but she's now without social support, has no source of income, no one to protect her from anyone who might choose to do her harm. And even the sense that God is looking after her has gone. In fact, as far as she's concerned, God is to blame for her condition. There's a valuable lesson for us here, for those times when we find ourselves in a similar situation, when we too feel let down by God. God can handle us expressing how we feel to him. There's no sense in this passage of Naomi being in the wrong for crying out in her pain and despair. Her anger is simply reported as how it is. This is a human moment. And it's natural to express the anger and hurt we feel. Even Jesus Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's also important for us to realize at those times that the story goes on. This isn't where it ends. This is just the beginning. Naomi's grief won't last forever. God hasn't in fact forgotten Naomi, even if that's how she feels. With Naomi's urging, Orpah decides to go back to her people, but not Ruth. Ruth has seen something in Naomi, something in her character, something perhaps in her faith in God in the God of Israel that helps her make up her mind. She says to Naomi words that are full of significance beyond what appears at first glance. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's a significant thing for Ruth to say, considering that she is a Moabite. She has no place in the land that God has given to 
the children of Israel. She goes there, she will be a foreigner. She'll be subject to whatever it is there that, you know, foreigners are subject to. She's an outcast. She's not a part of the promise of God. But yet and still, she says, I see something in Naomi. And I see the God in Naomi and that God I want to follow. And so she makes a covenant with her and says, I'm going with you wherever you go. Whatever you have to go through, I'm going to go through with you. I'm going to be right there with you because I believe in the God that you serve. I think it's important to point out that Naomi, one of two women that the Bible really speaks about, and one of the, I mean, there's not a lot of women that the Bible talks about, you know, in any significant way. And so when you look at the character of Naomi and how she's steadfast and unmovable in her faith, and then Ruth coming along beside her, seeing that example and saying, hey, well, I want to follow that because I know that where my blessing is going to lie. An outsider. Someone who's not a part of the promise. And we see later on in the New Testament how God took a people that were not a part of the promise and made them a part of the promise. That's you and that's me. God has made us a part of the promise. He has grafted us in. And I think that this is a fine example of how God decides to deal with his people. In chapter two, the focus shifts from Naomi to Ruth. Like Naomi, Ruth is having a crisis of her of, of identity. Her husband has died. She has, <clears throat> she has left her family and her home and her country. She left everything to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing that, hey, we might go there and we might start, not knowing that, you know, what may happen to her, but she said, hey, I'm going to follow her anyway. And she went back, or she went with, not having any protection. She doesn't have a husband. Naomi doesn't have a husband. They don't have an heir. So how are they going to be protected? They're at the whims of whatever happens to them there in that particular situation. They're just trusting God to take care of them. She's an outsider, putting her life and her health at risk by gleaning food from fields. An unmarried foreign woman with no rights, surrounded by men who can mean her harm. But as God's will would have it, the first field Ruth enters belongs to Boaz. He is kind and a godly family member of Naomi's. What does that mean? That means he is a kinsman redeemer. And we'll get back to that point later. I, thought, I was talking to my wife last night. And if you read the opening of chapter two, it basically says that Naomi, or yeah, Naomi was like, hey, I got this bright idea. I have a relative. And what does that mean? That my relative can get us out of this situation. And then if you go down, go down a little bit further, it basically says, hey, Ruth, just so happened to come upon the field of Boaz. And I was like, just so happened? <laughs> I 
I said, this whole thing was planned out. It was planned out. She knew what she was doing. They knew that they had a redeemer in Boaz. And she put herself in the right position for him to see her. Whether you're a man or you're a woman, when you're courting, you're trying to find a wife, you try to put yourself in the right position. I know I did. I tried to put myself in the right position. I wanted my wife to see me in the best light. I know this isn't part of the sermon, but I wanted her to see me in the best light possible. You know, and so I began to tell her things and she began to tell me things and, you know, it all looked good in the beginning. A lot of y'all don't know. I think I told a few people, you know, my wife and I, we met online. We met online and we don't tell a lot of people that, but we did. And we met in one of the worst places online that you could meet, Craigslist. <laughs> one of the, we, we, we tell people all the time, we don't recommend that you go to Craigslist. People come up missing, but it just God brought us together. We talked for a month on Craigslist I mean, through emails, and then we talked a month on the phone before we actually met. So I think we did it the right way, but I don't recommend. I don't think Craigslist is around anymore. Probably for that reason. All right, let me move on. So she put herself in the right position. She wanted to find a husband. Her, Ruth, and Naomi, they had this whole thing plotted out. So she so happened to be in the field where she would be noticed by Boaz. Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. Hearing of Ruth's selflessness, Boaz instructs his men not to touch her. He is generous with his food and his water. The only thing he knows about Ruth is that she is Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's his family. And yet, he shows her much favor. Boaz showing this kind of undeserved favor is a huge indicator that he is a type of Christ. An Old Testament character, this is what a type of Christ is, an Old Testament character who shows us the nature of God before God's incarnation, or before Christ's incarnation. In Boaz's dealings with Ruth, we see a picture of how Jesus treats us. Let us go back and read our opening text, Ruth 3, 7 through 13. I know we've read that a lot today. I read it once, we read it once before. I was going to read it again. Ruth 3, 7 through 13. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I would do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. 
But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until I mean, lie down until the morning. What is a kinsman redeemer? <clears throat> a kinsman a kinsman redeemer is a relative who restores or preserves the full community rights of a dis, disadvantaged family member. The concept arises from God's covenant relationship with Israel and points to the redemption of humanity in Jesus Christ. The kinsman redeemer is seen in the Old Testament delivering, rescuing, redeeming a person or property and or avenging a wrong. Um, I think this is in Deuteronomy. I was trying to remember what verse, but it says if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man should not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother should go to or go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband, of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his de dead brother. That is, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. You guys have to excuse me. I had some issues with my printer this morning. <laughs> And whatever, I didn't have cover in there, and whatever was supposed to be covered didn't print out. So I think that scripture is in Deuteronomy. You can come and ask me later. I have it on my phone. <clears throat> so we, we know what a kinsman redeemer is, what a kinsman redeemer is, what is the purpose of a kinsman redeemer. The nearest unmarried male relative is to marry the widow and provide her with an heir and redeem her land so that... The widow is protected from social and economic marginalization slash abuse. Number two, the covenant land inheritance estate of the dead man is protected and the family has a livelihood. And number three, the child born to the widow will be considered the son of the dead man, not the genetic father, thus preserving his name. Thus, the law required that when a relative stepped up to the plate, he would gain by taking the land, but have to provide for the wife and the child of the dead man. The kinsman redeemer system served as the Old Testament's equivalency, uh, equivalent to, uh, of a bankruptcy law, and its economic design was entirely to protect and preserve the inheritance of the dead. That was the purpose of a kinsman redeemer. Next, we want to move on to what the character and qualities of a, kins, of a kinsman redeemer are. One, you had to be a kin. That's simple enough. The only way you could be a kinsman redeemer was that you had to be of the same family. There had to be some relational tie. I like to think of it as you had to be of the same kind. Someone from another family could not bring about the redemption because they were of a different kind. Number two, you had to be willing. In the, in the Ruth and Boaz story, the person who was the next redeemer in line was simply not willing to follow, to follow through with the redemption. If the person was not willing, 
They could, be, they could not be forced to do it. Being willing is at the heart of what a kinsman redeemer is. Understanding the biblical practice of kinsman redeemer might prove helpful for us to see why the nearer redeemer in, behaved the way that he did. Chapters, chapter 3, verse 12 states that there is a nearer redeemer. There was someone else who could come in, who could step in and redeem. However, in chapter 4, the nearer redeemer wasn't willing to jeopardize his own inheritance. If he took on uh, Ruth, he would jeopardize his own inheritance. Then Boaz said, and this is chapter 4, verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to excuse me to perpetuate the name of the the dead in, in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, "I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it." And then number three, you had to be able to redeem it. <clears throat> Willingness alone was not enough to be a kinsman redeemer. You actually had to be able to follow through with the redemption. If you did not have the financial means to make the redemption, then you could not be the redeemer. It did not matter how good your intentions were. And then number four, you had to pay the full price. You had to pay the full price. There was no such thing as partial redemption when it came to being a kinsman redeemer. Unless the full price was paid, there was no redemption. It was truly an all or nothing proposition. John Piper says this at the conclusion of the book of Ruth. He says this, he says, if this, if this story of Ruth just ended in a little Judean village with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, glory would be too big of a word. But the Arthur doesn't leave it there. He lifts his eyes to the forest and the mountain snows of redemptive history. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says very simply that this child, Obed, was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. All of a sudden, we realize that all along, something far greater has been in the offing than we could imagine. God was not only plotting for the temporal blessings of a few Jews in Bethlehem, he was preparing the coming, for the coming of the greatest king that Israel would ever have, and that was David. And the name of David carries with it the hope of the Messiah, the new age, peace, righteousness, freedom from pain and crying and grief and guilt. This simple little story opens out like a stream into a river of great hope. So what does this story point to? We understand that in the lineage of David, that Boaz and Naomi and Ruth all had a hand in bringing that forth. But also, it's pointing to a bigger picture. What is that bigger picture? The bigger picture is Christ. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Christ became just like us in order to redeem us. Jesus became us. Because the Redeemer had to be like of like kind, Jesus had to become like us. 
if Jesus did not take on humanity, there would be no way of redemption for us. Since sin came into the world through one man, it would take another man to bring about our righteousness. This will require the infinite God to take on human flesh. This is what Jesus did. And in the Gospel of John, we see this spelled out very clearly. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made its dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1 and 14. Jesus became just like you and me, which put him in a position so that he could redeem us. Christ is the better redeemer. Number two, Jesus was willing to redeem us. In Philippians, we see the willingness of Jesus to become, become our redeemer. Philippians 2, 5, and 8. In your relationships with one another, having the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Christ is a better redeemer. John 10 and 18 says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus was willing and that's what makes him a better redeemer. Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice of his own free will. No one twisted his arm to do it. He was willing to be obedient and to see the process all the way through. That's what makes Jesus Christ a better redeemer. And then three, Jesus was able to redeem. Having the willingness, as we said earlier, means nothing if you did not have the ability to redeem. Thankfully for us, this was not the case. The death and the obedience of Jesus was everything that was needed to bring about our redemption. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for us, for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the, diso the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. That's Romans 5, 18 through 19. And number four, Jesus paid the complete price for our sin. Titus 2.14, he, he gave us life to, to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make, a, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. The beautiful thing about our redemption is that 
It is com- a complete redemption. There is nothing else needed to complete it or bring it to pass. Well, I stand corrected. There is one thing that is needed. You must put your faith in the redeemer of your soul. When you do that, then the work is finished and the sin debt that was owed on your account will be paid in full, paid once for all, once and for all. When you think about what a kinsman redeemer is, it is all about what was lost being found. You and I were lost and on the verge of losing everything, but Jesus stepped in, he restored what was lost and gave us a new identity in Christ. The beautiful thing is you never have to worry about having to be redeemed again. He paid the price of redemption once and for all. And that makes Christ a better redeemer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for what you have provided for us in salvation and what the cost was, you paid it. And now we can call you a better redeemer. We can call you the redeemer. And we thank you for redeeming us. In Jesus' name, amen.